First Kings chapter 18, if you'll join me there. We continue our look here at the life and ministry of Elijah the prophet, probably one of the more dynamic prophets that we have in the word of God, uh, sort of a backdrop to where we were at last time. The setting of Elijah's ministry is at the time when King Ahab and his wife Jezebel are reigning at this point in time in the northern kingdom. And of course, we know from 1 Kings chapter 16 and some other places in the scripture that uh, these two individuals, this couple, they, they were probably one of the most ungodly and, and wicked couples to reign for a period of time uh, in Israel's history. In fact, the Bible tells us Ahab did more evil in the sight of the Lord than all who were before him and that he did more to provoke the Lord to anger than all the other kings of Israel before him. And that's because they interjected all types of idolatry, uh, false ways of worship into the people's lives. They turned the people away from uh, Yahweh God and into worship of uh, Baal and the asterisks and all types of uh, foreign deities. And just, of course, with that, bringing all types of immoral activity and loose uh, sort of behaviors and, and lifestyles morally, those things just all kind of come together and really just uh, sent the nation on a, a downward spiral morally and spiritually. In the midst of that and those very, very dark times nationally that God raises up a prophet. And he sends Elijah into the midst, it seems, of sort of the palace where uh, King Ahab and Jezebel would have been. We saw last time in chapter 17, really no background, not a whole lot told about us. It just tells us that this man, Elijah the Tishbite, who certainly we know had been praying who had been uh, reviewing the word of God, knowing that what Israel was doing at that time deserved the judgment of God. And God had said in Deuteronomy 11 and other places that if his people turned away from him, if they turned to worship of other gods and they weren't faithful to the Lord and they disregarded God and his word, that one of the things God would do as a consequence and a discipline to bring judgment against their sin and rebellion is that God would withhold the rains, which were very critical to their survival. That was sort of like economic collapse for them in that time period because if they did not get the former and the latter rains in the fall and the spring, it devastated their crops. And so it caused drought and starvation and difficulty in these different ways. So uh, Elijah knew that God's word said this. He was a man of the word of God. He had been spending time in God's presence and praying. It tells us James chapter five, that he was a man who prayed in fervent ways before the Lord. And because of that, God spoke to him and said, Elijah, you're right. I'm gonna honor my word. And he's now sent with that prophetic word. He goes into the palace there where Ahab was and told Ahab as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand. He said, you shall not see dew or rain these years except at my word. Just one prophecy, sort of a one word, powerful prophetic sermon. He walks out. I'm sure he enraged in one sense. King Ahab was a very risky thing to do, but he wasn't in the fear of man. He was in the fear of God. And that's why he went in and said that. But more than that, I think probably in some ways Ahab and probably all of his palace staff and those around him, they probably almost thought Elijah was somewhat of a joke. I can imagine in their pompous attitudes and their arrogance and their evil and their pride as oh, a wicked king, they probably heard Elijah come in and they thought, who is this guy to come in here and to say somehow that all of a sudden the rains are going to shut off and he's going to shut up the heavens at his word uh, and that somehow Yahweh God is going to... And, and they probably almost thought it was somewhat amusing, certainly irritating and, and frustrating, but I imagine they almost kind of mocked at and scoffed this prophecy when it came forth. But then week after week and month after month and year after year, we know as we get to chapter 18 now, three years there's been no rain. There's been bad drought. There's been severe famine in the land, particularly in the land of Samaria, where the capital of the northern kingdom was and where Ahab and Jezebel dwelt at. And after he pronounced that prophecy, we saw in chapter 17 that God then began to do some more things to prepare Ahab. 
he had this one word or one sentence prophecy or sermon, if you would, and then God sends him into a, a hiding place. He tells him, now go and hide yourself at the brook Cherith. And there God said, I've commanded the ravens to feed you. And every day it says that he would drink from the brook and, and the ravens, God commanded ravens, these unclean birds. And every day it says in the morning and the evening, they would drop off his breakfast, bread and meat. And then they'd come back in the evening and bring his dinner. And for a year, God commanded these birds to sustain his prophet there by the brook Cherith all alone. No doubt God's working in him, shaping, developing his character, cutting things out of his life that still needed to be removed to further prepare him. And all these things, I think, are just further preparing him for the crescendo of his greatest test of faith, which happens in chapter 18. After a year there, remember, it says the brook dried up and then the word of the Lord came to him and said, now, Elijah, I want you to go all the way to Sidon, up outside of the northern border of Israel. And he says, and now there I've commanded a widow to provide for you. Uh, so God, using these unorthodox, unusual ways, provides by a, a raven and then he provides by a, a vulnerable and impoverished widow who we saw was very poor, didn't even have enough to survive herself. But yet for another two years, he's there with this widow and her son and miraculously every day, God's causing what little bit this widow had to just keep multiplying and, and sustaining it and it never ran out and the oil and the little bit of flour she had in her jar it just kept multiplying and multiplying and multiplying and, and God preserved and God provided uh, as she had Elijah the man of God there with her and then of course we saw that ultimate test when then her son died became sick and died and Elijah again trusting God in faith begins to pray over this child and miraculously God resuscitates this child, brings the life of the child back and, and, and raises the child back out of the death experience and he presents her back to this widow. So again, God doing all these things in Elijah, he's teaching him how to live one step at a time, didn't give him the three-year plan. Gave him one step at a time. Each time he'd take a step, God would work and then God, he'd have to wait upon the Lord for the next step and God's testing his faith God's stretching him, God's growing and developing him, teaching him how to live by faith, to trust God, to provide and to come through, uh, that he couldn't scheme and make it happen on his own. And God's doing incredible miracles in his midst. And again, building him, preparing him, because now as he comes to chapter 18, there's been three years of this process, three years of drought and famine and no rain. And Ahab is really, we're going to see in chapter 18, literally on a, on a manhunt to find Elijah and put him to death and now God's going to bring him back out of hiding and say Elijah now I'm ready to send rain on the land once again and the way it's going to happen is not from afar you need to go back and face Ahab again and you have to imagine how that would be pretty risky after three years of all the heartache and devastation on the land for him to go back and present himself to King Ahab when he was the one that said the rains would be shut off. So with that backdrop, which helps, comes to chapter 18, verse 1. It says, It came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah, notice, in the third year, saying, Go, present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. So a word now comes from the Lord three years into this process of growing his faith, showing him the power of God and miracles and learning how to listen to the Lord for leading step by step. And now he gets another step. Doesn't get a whole lot of information, but all he is told, Elijah, you're not getting the full map, but here's what I'm giving you, a conditional promise, a command and a conditional promise. The command, Elijah, now it's time to go present yourself to Ahab. Now, interesting. In chapter 17, verse uh, 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 2 and 3 there, the Lord said to him, get away and go hide yourself. Now the Lord says, go present yourself. So there was a time to go and hide and to be in obscurity and out of the public eye and let God work in his life. There was a, a private work that God wanted to do. And, and there's a time sometimes when God says, I don't want you to be in the public. 
I want to hide you away and I want to do some personal and private things in your life. And sometimes God will allow us, if you will, to, to go into a time maybe of obscurity and we're kind of just shut away and everything's shut off and we're not doing a lot publicly. And God, But God's working in that process. He's just working in us. And then there may come a time when God says, okay, now I don't want you to hide yourself. Now I want you to go and present yourself. Now I want you to engage and follow my plan and let your life be useful for me. And so now this time comes three years later. Now, Elijah, is the time. Go present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the earth. So again, as he goes to see Ahab, that would be the way once he presented himself to Ahab and announced it, that God would then send the rain on the earth. But again, keep in mind, that would be kind of a scary command to get because it's been three long years of hardship and, and Ahab connects this directly to this man Elijah who marched into his palace and said, at my word, there's not going to be dew or rain on the land ever again until I say so. Uh, so he knows, no doubt, uh, he's been hiding. God's been preserving and protecting him. This is a very risky thing. But again, keep in mind what Elijah had learned was to live in the fear of God and not the fear of man. And because he spent time in God's presence and he knew the true king is not some man, no matter how much power he has that sits upon the throne. The true king is God. The true king is Yahweh God. And if he's telling me to do this, then I will submit to him. And I like this because verse two says, Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. In other words, beautiful to see Elijah, the command of God and the promise given attached to it, cared more about obeying the Lord than he did honestly about his own self. I mean, again, risky and dangerous command circumstantially. But I like this. This is somebody who has a greater love for the Lord and desires to do what is right and obey the Lord more than he does keeping in consideration his own self-interest. And you know, that's maturity there. Because a lot of times when we don't obey the Lord or someone won't obey the Lord, a lot of times what's attached to that unwillingness to obey the Lord is a concern for their own self-interests. Because sometimes the command of the Lord you know, kind of violates our self-interests. And God says, I want you to do this. But Lord, if I do that, well, I want you to do this. But Lord, if I do that, that, that that's, that's going to be humbling. Or Lord, there may be some cost associated. Or you know, Lord, if I do that, but the Lord says, okay, but the question is this. Do you love yourself or do you love me? Do you want to obey me or do you want to preserve your own self-interest? And so sometimes God will give us a, a command that involves maybe something that seems a risk uh, or some personal cost. But this is where faith comes to play. And we trust that if we obey the Lord, that things work out and that God will be in control and orchestrate circumstances and keep his good hand upon us. So Elijah goes he begins walking forward to present himself to Ahab. And verse 2 says, And there was a severe famine in Samaria. Again, it hadn't rained for three years. And because of this severe famine, look how bad things had gotten, we're going to see. Ahab, the king, had called Obadiah. Interesting, the word Obadiah means servant of God. That's what this man's name means. Now, let me just clarify. This is not the same Obadiah the Obadiah, the prophet we have in the Old Testament, as we get further in what we call the minor prophets, meaning just the, the shorter books, the smaller prophecies, uh, th there's an Obadiah, the prophet. That's not who this is. This isn't a prophet. This is just a man with the same name. Uh, he had this man, Obadiah, Ahab, notice, who was in charge of his house. So, uh, this man, Obadiah, was sort of like, it seems, sort of the, the administrator of all the affairs of King Ahab's house. He was sort of the chief of staff and, and kind of the, the head guy that worked together with him. And take notice, now Obadiah, this man who was in charge of King Ahab's house, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. Now take notice of the contrast there. Here is the most wicked king in Israel's history ungodly, evil, idolatrous, cares nothing for the things of the Lord, rebellious, leading the nation into idolatry and immorality. And he's got a wife that is just as aggressive in the process. And his chief of staff, we're going to see, is one of the most godly men living in this time. 
Now, to me, that's very interesting. Uh, to me, that's very interesting because it shows me that God put Obadiah, this godly servant of his, in a place of a staff position, and his employer was incredibly ungodly, evil man, wicked man, but God positioned a godly man right in that place as a staff member in that palace, just like God did with Daniel. God put Daniel in the, you know, the palace of, of, of wicked and ungodly administrations, and yet he was in a place of a, a high-ranking worker among the administrations of kingdoms of very ungodly men. Uh, same we see with Esther and, and Nehemiah and others like this. And again, sometimes the Lord works in those ways. He scatters us as his salt and light in the world among the world. The Bible says we are to be in the world, just we're not of the world. Look, it'd, it'd be great, wouldn't I? And I all of, they'd really like to have a Christian boss who opens the day with prayer and we have a devotion at lunch uh, and we have all Christian policies and principles and you're not allowed to curse and everybody does everything right and ethical, right? That'd be fantastic. That's just not reality. <laughs> That's not the typical reality. And the Lord wants us to be salt and light. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And so sometimes, well, why do I got to work for this place? This company is so ungodly. If you knew, I mean, can you imagine Obadiah? He had to work for Ahab and Jezebel. That must not have been easy. It must have been very difficult. At times it must have vexed his spirit to have to hear things and see things and, and what they would implement and how they would operate. But yet that was where God put him. God put him there as a servant of God for a purpose and a reason. And, and again, sometimes God may put us in those same places as well for his reasons and design. And we should embrace those as missional opportunities, even if we may work in a very wicked, perhaps, place in our vocation or our job or the company that we work for. Verse 4, notice we get a little bit about uh, Obadiah, what he did. This shows you how much he feared the Lord, even more than his own wicked boss. Verse 4, for so it was while Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, massacred, well, that's a gruesome word, isn't it? Massacred the prophets of the Lord that Obadiah had taken 100 prophets and hidden them, 50 to a cave and had fed them with bread and water. So notice what happens. Not only were Ahab and Jezebel opposed to the things of God, not only were they leading people into idolatry and, and setting up you know, temples to foreign gods and, and, and all that kind of thing, but they were aggressively aggressively trying to eliminate everything that was godly, good, and righteous. I mean, do you see what that says there? It says the queen Jezebel was massacring. She was murdering servants of the Lord. She was putting to death and executing prophets of the one true and living God. Anyone who would speak the word of God, it wasn't just the capital offense. that She was trying to execute and, and do what she could to massacre and eliminate them. And it's in the midst of these things, again, where's God put Obadiah? At the right place in the right time, because he was probably one of the first ones that heard about this and became aware of what was going on. And Obadiah, sort of like you know, Esther, realized, wow, I'm here for such a time as this. And so he, to, again, to the risk of his own welfare, look what he does. He steps in, it says, and he takes a hundred prophets... And he hides them away in a cave, 50 to each cave, and then he's sustaining them with food and with water to keep them alive, to protect them and to help them remain alive because they were servants of the one true God and were speaking the word of God. And again, this shows how Obadiah uh, was truly a man was willing to get involved to do the right thing. And God knew that this was the man that needed to be there so that he could step in. And despite, again, the personal risk, could you imagine if he would have got caught doing that? The risk to himself, the, the danger that he was putting upon himself, personal risk and personal cost. But again, this is another mark of someone who is truly a, a genuine servant of the Lord. That they're willing to do what is right and do the right thing despite personal risk. You know, if you genuinely want to be a servant of the Lord, I'm telling you, there are going to come times where you're going to have to decide, 
I'm willing to do the right thing even if it involves personal risk and cost to myself. I'll bear the cost then. If that's what it involves, I'll take the risk. I'll bear the cost. And that's what Obadiah does here. He steps in this servant of the Lord to help in this way. And I like this, and I don't mean this as sort of a, a goofy pun, but again, this man, he's not a, he's not a priest. He's not a prophet, but he's very profitable. Would you agree for God's work? Oh, the prophets of God. Oh, wow, they're, they're so important. Listen, this guy wasn't a prophet of God, but he spared a hundred prophets. He did something very practical, very helpful. He housed a hundred prophets. He fed and supplied financially and with food and water a hundred prophets of God. He wasn't a prophet. He wasn't speaking the word of the Lord, but he was serving as a support person. And he was doing practical things to help and sustain and keep God's work viable. And again, I like this because you can be very profitable for God by doing very practical things and serving and helping out his work in ways like Obadiah did here. Well, verse 5, because the time was so hard, Ahab, the king, said to Obadiah, his servant in charge of his house, go into the the land, he says, to all the springs of water in the brooks, perhaps we may find grass to keep the horses and mules alive so that we will not have to kill any livestock. So they divided the land between them to explore it. Ahab went one way by himself and Obadiah went another way by himself. So because times are so hard, it's getting difficult. They go on this exploration around the land and the territory looking for some remaining uh, sort of water holes where there's some source of water, some vegetation still, so they can keep these animals that were essential uh, alive at this time and not have to kill their livestock and begin to, to eat them for survival. So they both go two separate directions now. Verse 7, now as Obadiah was on his way, traveling one direction, suddenly Elijah met him. Now, it, it, did Elijah purposely plan to meet him? Uh, did uh, God sovereignly just, again, many, many roads all around Israel and territory, did God just divinely arrange that Elijah would just happen to be on the right road, that Obadiah was on at the same road at the same time? I personally tend to believe that. Again, is God speaking to Elijah, leading him, directing him? Well, the Bible does tell us the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And Obadiah was a good man, a godly man. Elijah was a good man and a godly man. And so they're both just taking one step at a time, doing what they're doing. And God now brings their paths together. And he causes them to intersect in the meet. And this becomes the way that God begins to bring together the pieces for Elijah to go and announce to King Ahab that the rain is ultimately coming. So all of a sudden now Elijah meets up and it says that when they met, that Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face. He was overwhelmed and scared, it seems, and said, Is that you, my Lord Elijah? So Elijah was a very respected and uh, someone who was revered because of his godliness and who he was with his relationship with the Lord. Verse 8, and he answered him, It is I. Go, he says, tell your master Elijah is here. Tell him Elijah has come back out of hiding for three years and he's present. So he said to him, verse 9, How have I sinned that you are delivering your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, he says, There is no nation or kingdom where my master, notice, has not sent someone to hunt for you. And when they said he's not here, he took an oath from the kingdom or the nation that they could not find you. So he says, uh, uh, Elijah, let me bring you up to speed here. <laughs> While you've been hiding for three years, he says, King Ahab has been sending people to every nation, to every kingdom, hunting for you, trying to hunt you down, to find you, to put you to death because he's so angered that this drought has come on the land at your supposed word for three years. And he says, and if the nation says you're not there, he makes them take an oath that you absolutely are not at the risk of their own destruction. And he says, I don't know if you realize what you're asking. Verse 11, he says, and now you say to me, go tell your master Elijah's here. It shall come to pass as soon as I'm gone from you, he says, the spirit of the Lord will carry you to a place that I don't know. So when I go and tell Ahab and then he cannot find you, he will kill me. 
But I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. I like that. Feared the Lord from my youth. Take that if you're a young person. That's how godliness comes about in a wonderful way. Was it not reported to my Lord what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets, 50 to a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your master Elijah is here. He will kill me. So he expresses his fears. He says, look, do you realize what you're asking me to do? If I go tell my boss, Ahab, Elijah's here, what's going to happen? I know what's going to happen. And he just begins to envision in his mind all these fearful thoughts and the, the what might happen syndrome starts to terrify a servant of the Lord. He says, I'm going to go tell him Elijah's here. And then when we come back to find you, the spirit of the Lord is going to just pick you up and catch you away and God's going to put you somewhere else and hide you away to keep you safe so Ahab and his men don't kill you and then Ahab is going to be so incensed so angry that I made him think that that I was going to deliver you into his hands that he's going to say off with your head I'm getting somebody new to be my chief of staff you're replaceable don't even need your resignation off with your head and he says he'll kill me do you realize what you're asking me to do? He says, if I do this and then you're not there, he's going to just be so angry he'll kill me. Well, Elijah, verse 15, promises now to Obadiah, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand. I, I don't stand before your boss. I stand before the Lord to answer to him. He says, I will surely present myself to him today. He gives him a promise that he doesn't have to fear. And again, sometimes we need that because like Obadiah, sometimes a situation presents itself and we do like Obadiah. You know, here we've had faith, we've trusted the Lord, but then sometimes situations come in our lives and like Obadiah, we start going through all the what ifs. Well, what if this happens and, and that might happen? And what if that, right? And that's what Obadiah is doing here. He's terrified because of all the what ifs. What if that happens? And then what? Then when that happens, and then... And sometimes it's amazing how is it we can be so confident. Keep in mind, here's Obadiah. What did he just do prior to this? He hid 100 prophets of God at the risk of his own welfare in disregard for what Jezebel, the queen, was doing. And he had faith to trust God for that. Now... He can't trust God to keep him safe because all of his thoughts are firing, you know, overtime in his head and he's going through the, all the what if, what if, what if, and oh my God. And, and now all of a sudden he's spazzing out and he's losing all courage. And I look at that in some ways, I think, man, that really makes me feel comfortable. <laughs> that makes me feel a lot better because sometimes, boy, we really can trust the Lord and we have confidence and we're certain and we'll step out and obey the Lord and do what is right in faith and then other times, Sometimes, boy, we just, we flake out and, and we lack courage and faith and trust and we let all the what ifs just overwhelm us in such a way. And the wonderful thing is in those times, God just sends us a promise. And that's what Elijah does. He's like, I'm giving you a promise. I'm, go I'm not going to go nowhere. Here's the promise. I'm going to present myself. And, and sometimes God does that. He helps us in our times of struggle and doubt and questioning. He says, I'm not going anywhere. So verse 16 Obadiah trusts him. He went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? Isn't it amazing? That's what he calls Elijah. You're the one who's troubling all Israel. Because of your righteousness, because you speak the word of God, because you are in touch with God and in tune with God, you're causing all the trouble in the nation. Boy, is that not a fitting description, unfortunately, of what many ungodly people do in defining those who are righteous. Those who are ungodly, those who are wicked, who want to disobey God, disregard God, his will, his word, and his ways, they look at you and I who are godly and righteous and they say, you're the trouble in the nation. You're troubling the nation because of your righteousness and, and what you represent. You're causing all the problems. And it's just complete backwards perception, but that's what sin does. It distorts people's view. He says, is that you, O troubler of Israel? Well, Elijah answered and said, I've not troubled Israel. You and your fathers have, and that you've forsaken the commandments of the Lord 
and have followed the Baals. So uh, he, he just puts it back to him very clearly. He says, look, the, the problem and the trouble in the nation is not because of those who are doing what's righteous like myself. He says, it's people like you who are disregarding God and disregarding the will of God and the ways of God by setting aside his word in your immoral and evil ways, that's what's causing trouble to the nation. Again, the Bible says that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And so he says the trouble with the nation is, is your disobedience and those who've rebelled against God. Now, therefore, Elijah sort of starts steering the ship in the boldness of the Lord he says, send and gather, verse 19, all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 450 prophets of Asherah, who was sort of the wife, supposedly, of the, the goddess or god Baal, the goddess Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. Notice they were financing, the king and queen were, hundreds and hundreds of these false prophets eating at the king's table. They, they weren't only introducing evil and ungodliness, the administration was financing it. I wonder if that's happened a few times in the American administration. I won't give any examples. You can connect the dots, I'm sure. Uh, but here they were financing these prophets of Baal and Asherah, and he says, look, it's time to settle things now. Call them, call all Israel and meet me on Mount Carmel. We're going we're gonna to have a showdown. Elijah's saying, we're going to settle this once for all. So Ahab, verse 20, he welcomed the proposal. He sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah, verse 21, came to all the people. And before he addresses Ahab, notice he, he challenges now the people of the nation who had in many ways yielded to cooperated with and submitted with the ungodly ideas and false worship that had been introduced into their lives as citizens. Elijah says to all the people gathered that day on Mount Carmel, how long will you falter between two opinions? That is, how long will you waver back and forth? How long will you, will you be you know, hesitating between two different opinions? of what is right and what is wrong. He says there, if the Lord is God, if Yahweh, Jehovah is God, then follow him. And he says, if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people answered not a word. They just sat there silent. So he challenges the indecisive attitude of the people spiritually and morally because what the people were doing was thinking that somehow they could sort of straddle both worlds. And, and, and I mean, we can kind of worship Yahweh God, but we also want to have all the benefits and the perks and the things that go along with, with worshiping Baal and, and Astra and, and the sinful practices and the pleasurable experiences and the things we can do to enjoy ourselves. And they kind of were trying to live in both worlds and straddle the fence, straddling the fence morally, straddling the fence spiritually. And trying to serve two different deities. And, and Elijah says, that's not possible. He says, how long are you going to continue to be indecisive? You need to make a commitment. You need to make a decision. If Yahweh God is the one true God, then serve him. Stop playing games. Stop playing games. Choose. Like Joshua said, you know, choose you this day whom you will serve. And then Joshua said, as for me and my household... We're going to serve the Lord. And, and, and there comes a time where I think that challenge needs to go out to all of our lives. Certainly a, a nation, a people need that challenge to not be indecisive, to not waver, to not try and live in both worlds and straddle the fence. These things are too important. God is worthy of our complete allegiance and our 100% reliance. That's why Jesus, remember, himself said that no man can serve two masters. You can't serve two masters. It's not You can't waver between two different things and sort of live in a place of indecision and double-mindedness. And Elijah is calling the people as a prophet of God, as a servant of the Lord, saying, stop being indecisive. Choose. Choose. Either choose to live and serve God 100%, full-on, completely committed, or, or, or cut it out and choose to go live sin and rebellion and follow your false God. But pick. 
Pick one and serve one. And again, I think sometimes the Lord challenges our own hearts in those ways sometimes that we have to make a decision. You have to make a decision. You can't live in two worlds. You've got to choose who you're going to worship and choose who you're going to serve. And sometimes the Lord says, how long are you going to waver? It's time to make a decision. The people were sort of shocked. They didn't know what to say. No one had ever challenged them like this before. They, I don't think they had been challenged in such a bold way to realize they did have to make a decision. So Elijah then said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. In other words, what Elijah is trying to emphasize, hey, this showdown is about to happen. Let me just remind you of, of the odds here. It's 450 verse 1. There's 450 of them and there's one prophet of Yahweh God here, one servant of the Lord. Therefore, verse 23, here's his instructions. Now let them give us two bulls. Let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood but put no fire under it and I will prepare the other bull after they do theirs and lay it on the wood and put no fire under it. And then you call on the name of your gods, he tells those prophets, and then I will call on the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. He's the true God. So all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. So he says, this is what we'll do. We'll, we'll, we'll each create a sacrifice We'll each prepare it. And he says, and whatever one of our gods answers miraculously with fire, that's the one true God. What do you think about that? Now, understand, for all the prophets of Baal and the people who worship Baal, they're thinking, this is a great idea. Number one, Mount Carmel was known for Baal worship. They're in the right place. Number two, Baal was supposed to be the storm god who controlled lightning. So he's thinking, hey, I'm going to give you every chance you can. Plus, there's 450 of you and there's only one of me. Whatever God brings the fire and lightning from the heavens and lights up the sacrifice, he's the one true God. They like that. Okay, that sounds like a great plan. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, verse 25, choose one bull for yourselves. Prepare it first, for you are many. You go first. Call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. Don't cheat, he says. So they took the bull which was given them and prepared it, called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. So about three hours, they're crying out for Baal. Oh, Baal, hear us. But there was no voice and no one answered because Baal's not a real God. He's a false deity. There was no voice, no one answered. Then, notice, three hours of crying out, no fire, no answer as they're crying out to Baal. Then they leaped about the altar which they had made. So they think, okay, we gotta, we got to work them up a little more. So we're, we're crying out. Three hours of crying out's not working. So now they've they got to you know, work themselves up into a frenzy. So now they're jumping and dancing around and hyper-emotionalism. We've got to do what we got to do to work up our God, to get him to answer somehow. And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is meditating, maybe he's off thinking somewhere, and, and you, he's, he's in deep thought. You've got to get his attention. Don't give up yet. It's only been three hours, he says. Or maybe he's busy. I mean, maybe he's on the other line. You know, maybe he's you know, tied up with something, and, 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 and after a little while, you know, he just, you'll get his attention. He's just preoccupied. Or maybe he's on a journey. Maybe this is vacation week, and you forgot to check in. Maybe he's traveled to a far territory. Or perhaps he's, he's sleeping. And he must be awakened. Maybe he's just falling asleep. If you just yell a little louder, that'll be like the awakening alarm clock and, and then he'll hear you. So he's sort of making a mockery of this whole thing. And keep in mind, hundreds of people and a big part of Israel is all gathered around watching this on Mount Carmel. So they cried aloud, verse 28, and they cut themselves as was their custom with knives and lances until the blood gushed out on them. So notice, now they start afflicting themselves, as was their custom. Notice, part of their custom of their pagan worship practices was cutting. It was using knives and sharp objects to make lacerations and cuts and symbolic cuts in themselves to afflict themselves. And that was a part, this cutting experience 
of how to summon and curry favor from their gods. Interesting, that's where these practices and customs come from. And in our country, in prior years, we, we've had a problem, certainly, particularly with our young people, with cutting to somehow curry favor or do something to release inner pain. And, and so this, again, where does it comes from? Pagan, demonic ideas, cutting themselves literally bleeding, trying to summon the favor of, of some blessing and help because they're not being heard and no one's giving them attention and so they're trying to figure out a way how to cope. So now they're cutting themselves. And when midday was passed, they prophesied then until the time of the evening sacrifice, all the way into the late hours. But there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. Then Elijah said, enough of this. Let's move on. Come near to me. So all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. Now, I, I like that. Take notice, because to me, this is a whole part of the process of what is just a beautiful picture of revival, of calling people who were once alive and in right relationship with God, who had basically become dead as a doornail in compromise and turning away from God. And he's calling them now to repentance He's calling and looking to bring about a revival. God wants to revive his people. And part of the process wasn't only speaking the truth of God's word, but notice, repairing the altar of the Lord that was broken down. The altar was always the place of what? Worship and devotion. And at one time, there was ongoing worship and devotion, but that had been broken down in their lives and it needed to be repaired and restored. And you know, sometimes that is what's necessary. Sometimes the altar of our worship and devotion, the, the, the altar needs to be repaired. And the Lord says, look, you, you need to restore your worship life, your devotional life. It's, it's broken, man. It, it's, it needs to be repaired. You're not having your devotions anymore. You're not worshiping me anymore. And sometimes that needs to be repaired. The, 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 the personal altar in our lives needs repair. It needs restoration so that we can return to right fellowship and relationship with God's Spirit working in our life once again. So he repairs the altar. And then Elijah took 12 stones, verse 31, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. And then with those stones, watch this now, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. Notice who does he want to honor? Not Elijah. It's not, hey, Elijah's ministry, boy, we really push Elijah ministry. Elijah ministry will get lots of... It's not about Elijah. Elijah cares about being zealous for the name of the Lord. He wants the Lord to be honored in the sight of the people. He builds an altar in the name of the Lord, made a trench all around the altar, large enough to hold about two seas of seed. And then he put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, laid it on the wood, and then said, watch this, fill four water pots with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Now, can I remind you what is very scarce right now? Water. It's pretty risky again. Now, whether this is fresh water or they're getting water from the Mediterranean Sea, which would be salt water, which wasn't drinkable anyway, we're not told. But nonetheless, it's very unique what he's doing. Very, But keep in mind, fill four water pots pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Now, we're trying to get spontaneous combustion and fire here. <laughs> and he says, look, before I pray for the fire to light up the sacrifice, I'll tell you what, pour a whole bunch of water, four, pour four pots of water all over it, saturate the wood, saturate everything, make it as damp as possible. And they're thinking, man, this guy is, they're probably thinking, either he's got a lot of faith or he's cuckoo. Like, well, this guy is just out to lunch. What is he doing? And so he then says, verse 34, you know what? Do it a second time. Pour more water. Do it a second time. And then he said, verse 34, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar and then filled up the trench with water. So what's he doing? He's pouring tons of water on the wood and the sacrifice to make it absolutely evident what? That there is no humanly possible way that the fire comes about in the situation. That the only way fire could come now upon this sacrifice and wood which is saturated and wet is if there is a miraculous intervention 
of an all-powerful living God and that it was not at all a work of the flesh. He, he creates a scenario where it is absolutely evident this is nothing of the flesh. No work of the flesh, no human ingenuity, no tricks, no golden lever or silver bullet. This has got to be a total work of God. It's the only way it could happen. So this sacrifice in the wood, all this water all over it, and then it came to pass, verse 36, at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, that Elijah the prophet came near, and then he begins to pray. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known. That's what his heart is. Let it be known, Lord, this day, that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Notice, he, uh, Elijah wasn't just randomly doing these things, in case you've been wondering that up to this point. What is this guy doing? I mean, he's creative. I mean, all this whole showdown in Mount Carmel. Elijah's doing everything he's doing at the word of the Lord. God's speaking to him. I, I, listen, have you ever had the Lord kind of like speak to you and you're trying to follow his leading? And, and I know for myself, there have been occasions where I felt like the Lord's speaking to me and leading me. And sometimes I'm like having an argument in my head with the Lord as I'm trying to obey him in the moment. And, and the Lord's saying, I want, and I wonder if Elijah is kind of like, in, and he's hearing the Lord say, I want you to tell him to get all 850 prophets and go to Mount Carmel and you're going to show them who God is. And he's thinking, oh, Lord, are you sure about that? And, 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 and all these things. Now, Elijah, I want you to tell them that we're going to have a, and, and I'm going to answer by fire and prove. And he's, are you sure? Yeah. And then it doesn't work. He starts, Elijah, I want you to mock them. Mock them? There's 450 of them. Lord, mock them? They're already mad. They're cutting themselves. They're bleeding all. The, Lord, they got knives in their hands. Are you sure you want me to mock people with knives in your hands? That massacre prophets of the Lord. Yeah, Elijah mock him in fact mock him really good tell him your God's sleeping he must be busy maybe he's on a journey Lord alright Elijah now it's your turn alright right, Lord I'm ready to pray now and you can answer my fire no no wait Elijah I want you to tell him to dump tons of water on the sacrifice what yeah dump tons of water so he dumps a and then he's thinking oh my goodness Lord, I hope there is some dry spot left in that wood somewhere Elijah, tell him to do it again. Again? Tell him to do it again. Then he tells him to do it a third time. And he's thinking, Lord, are you sure? But he's obeying and he's trusting and God's, again, but God's built his faith through all those things he's been doing in the prior three years that Elijah knows what? If God can feed me for a year by ravens, if he can send me to a widow who has nothing and continue to take care of me. And he can just do miracles there. And then he can raise a child from death. He's trusting God. You can do this. Lord, you've shown your faithfulness in the past. You've shown your power in the past. So he says, hear me, O Lord. Verse 37. Hear me that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that, look at this, you have turned their hearts back to you again. He says, Lord, hear me, answer. That they may know that you're the one true God. And notice that they may know as well, verse 37, that it was you who turned their hearts back to you. That they wouldn't think, oh, Elijah, he's just such a great prophet. Man, because well, he is just such a great prophet and the stuff he says, wow, touches me. He says, no, Lord, let them know that you are speaking to their hearts. Let them know that you are the one who brought them to a place where you turned their heart back to you, that, Lord, they would know they had an encounter with you, that the living God intervened in this meeting, in this whole thing that's gone. Lord, let them know. He prays this very simple prayer. Look at it, verse 36 and 37. How long does it take to prayer like that? Short prayer, very simple prayer. Look at verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice, the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, look at the reaction, they fell on their faces and said, 
The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. They knew the one true God was real at this point. And then Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon, and he executed them again there, knowing according to Deuteronomy 13, God said that if there were false prophets, that they were to be rid from the land. So they didn't misguide the people. So in accordance again with the word of God, he now executes and removes these prophets. But again, verse 38, after that prayer, the fire of the Lord falls. And notice when the fire of the Lord falls upon the sacrifice, not only the sacrifice, the wood, but you see verse 38 there, the stones, that's some, that's some pretty strong fire. The stones literally are consumed and burnt up, not just the wood and the animal, <laughs> the stones. But see, when the fire of God fell, it wasn't human fire, it wasn't natural fire, it was divine fire. The Bible says that God is a consuming fire. And like on other occasions, the dedication of the priesthood and the, and the altar, the time with the dedication of the temple, there are a few occasions where the fire of the Lord just falls in a powerful way. Something incredible happens, something marvelous that just touches the hearts of people in a very powerful way. And this comes as the result of what? What did Elijah do? He obeyed the Lord. He walked in faith. He repaired the altar, the worship. And he prayed a simple, humble prayer. And the fire of the Lord fell in response to that. Uh, listen, I love this because... In contrast to the prophets of Baal, do you remember what they were doing? They were crying out. And there was all that hyper emotion, crying out. And his member says they were leaping and cutting themselves. And there was all this, we got to work it up. We got to work it up. We got to get them. And sometimes, let me just say, I'm just being honest here. Sometimes people relate to God like that. They think that, that in order, if we're going to get the fire of God to fall, that's what we got to do. I mean, we got to really cry out and get intense and jump around and leap around and we got to work him up and it's almost like we got a pep rally because if we do that we really work it up and jump and leap and scream and shout and pray really loud because God's deaf and we can really work it up then then we'll bring the fire of God down I see Elijah very humbly trusting God's word repairing the altar and worship and pray in a simple, genuine, humble prayer. And God's fire falls. And all the people's lives are touched and transformed. Let's stand. Let's pray together.